Dear listeners, just a quick note before we get started, we now have a Patreon page. If you've been enjoying these episodes and would like to show your support, please visit patreon.com slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson to support the show. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. is another little podcast in our bonus series on books that Dad and I have published. And this one is on Luther for Evangelicals. Don't know if we have any evangelical listeners out there. Hopefully we have some. Dad, why did you take it upon yourself to reintroduce Luther to the vast mass of primarily American evangelicals out there? Well, I think there's a positive reason and a negative reason. Uh, Most evangelicals, of course, trace their origins to Martin Luther. However shallow their grasp of Luther's own theology is, uh, he was the one who liberated faith from popery and uh, sacramental magic and made faith personal uh, so that one has a personal relationship to Jesus as Lord and Savior through faith. May I, may I just uh, ask you, I'm assuming you're using popery and sacramental magic in quotation marks as the usual American evangelical characterization of medieval Catholicism. You're not claiming that as your own I'm view. I'm being a little bit facetious or a little bit sarcastic there, yes. But of course, that's most evangelicals uh, read Luther that way. And if there's evidence to the contrary, they really don't want to know about it. <laughs> so we'll get to that in a minute. That's one reason, is that there actually is a link. In fact, uh, Michael Ma- uh, Massing, am I getting his name right? Michael Massing wrote a huge book that was published a couple of years ago on the controversy between Luther and Erasmus. And Massing made the argument that Luther is the forefather of tr- today's evangelicals, today's Trump-supporting Uh, evangelicals. And Erasmus is the forefather of all us progressives who are appalled at the right-wing religion of American evangelicalism. This this thesis is so badly flawed. I was actually at a symposium uh, with him when he was preparing this book. And uh, I had, he's a very pleasant man. I enjoyed talking to him. And uh, I gave him a lot of um, feedback on what I'd read of his thesis. But I don't think it made much of a difference to he had a kind of a fixed idea that he could interpret pro-Trump evangelicals with the figure of Martin Luther and present-day progressives with the figure of Erasmus. Never mind that Erasmus was every bit as anti-Semitic as Luther, or anti-Judaic, I should say, as Luther. And never mind that they were both humanists, and this was a quarrel between two German humanists. But anyway. Those kind of historical arguments are always so cheap. It's hardly the first in a a long vintage of stupid books that advance that kind of, you know, everything now can be explained by everything then, and, you know, these two people, whatever, blah, bad scholarship. If only history were that easy to figure out, right? (laughs) It's... uh, a lot of sound and fury sometimes signifying nothing. So that was one reason, was the lineage evangelicals claim to Luther, though it's not a lineage that I think is understood very well. 
The second reason is, as I've already alluded in these political asides, is that evangelicalism today is in an enormous crisis. Uh, from being a confident movement of 20 or 30 years ago, presently it is in considerable theological turmoil. And I have two sources for this assertion. One is a kind of a leading evangelical theologian, my former colleague, Gerald McDermott, uh, who edited the Oxford Handbook of Evangelicalism and argued that there is so much chaos in evangelical theology that a return to the great tradition is uh, urgent. So the kinds of arguments that Luther made against Karlstadt, Eucolampadius, Zwing and Zwingli uh, five centuries ago are especially salient uh, for contemporary evangelicals who imagine that you can simply leap from the pages of the New Testament to today's reality without considering the fact that for 2,000 years, previous generations of Christians have struggled and worked through the many uh, difficulties and uh, questions involved in reading Scripture. Which, interestingly, as I think I've mentioned uh, or may have mentioned at, at other times, is one of the major sources of discrediting Christianity among the more secular-minded. I mean, they they might do that anyway, but there is this perception that all of Christianity is fundamentalist, and it is this simply plopping ancient scriptures into present times, completely ignoring the long theological interpretive tradition. I'm annoyed at secular intellectuals for not seeing that theology as a long discipline exists, but on the the other hand, there is a, a large pocket of American Christianity that actively promotes that fiction. So the seculars can hardly be blamed for not penetrating through the fog, That's I right. suppose. When, when a character like Richard Dawkins picks up the book of Joshua and imagines that he can uh, make a direct equation between Joshua and contemporary Islamic jihad uh, or, or Christian fundamentalism, fundamentalists blowing up abortion clinics. Again, you know, that's this, the same kind of uh, short-circuiting of historical uh, knowledge that um, requires, a, at least for evangelicals, a reintrodu reintroduction to Luther. Yeah, and McDermott's uh, critique of his own tradition, uh, that it, uh, evangelicalism, that it has deviated fundamentally from the great Christian tradition, the broad ecumenical consensus, is uh, one source uh, of my perception that evangelicalism is in crisis. The other source was a remarkable history of evangelicalism by a, a University of North Carolina scholar named Molly Worthen that I found very illuminating. And she fundamentally, she argues that contemporary evangelicalism is really an alliance of three inwardly quite differentiated sources. Number one, uh, Wesleyan or Arminian revivalism from the, sec from the Second Great Awakening. Two, uh, the historic peace churches, the Mennonites, and the Church of the Brethren, and people like that. Um, and some very, you know, interesting 
theological voices that come out of the peace churches. But they, too, uh, are uh, a tradition that's very close to the Bible. And like the evangelical Wesleyans, uh, they share this belief in the experience of the new birth. That in distinction from sacramental baptism, one must have a personal experience of the assurance of grace uh, so that you know as an experienced fact in your own biography that the Lord Jesus has come into your life. And that belief, though not quite as pronounced, is also there in a third source of American evangelicalism. And that's the tradition of conservative reform theology. This you could trace back, I suppose, to Jonathan Edwards in some ways, uh, and uh, but more recently, uh, Scottish common sense realism that was advocated at Princeton Theological Seminary, a place you're familiar with, uh, in the 19th century. And this is where, from this reform source, uh, this is where evangelicalism really got its basic theological ideas because the Wesleyans, revivalists, and the Mennonites were not particularly strong on theology. They were Bible-believing Christians who were united by a common experience of the new birth. And they hitched their wagons intellectually to these uh, Reformed theologians of the 19th century who were arguing for the uh, inerrancy of the Bible as the absolute foundation. And of course, being close to the Bible, these uh, other two groups were attracted to the reformed defense of the inerrancy of the Bible. But along with that came the reformed ideas of the simplicity and absoluteness of God which were not always very congenial to the uh, experience of the new birth. Though, in fact, the more Zwinglian the Reformed tradition was, the more it agreed that sacraments are nothing more than an external sign of an inward transformation. And so there, too, was a convergence on the experience of the new birth. And so... What Molly Worthen shows us is that you have three distinct traditions uniting to form American evangelicalism, and they're not altogether coherent with each other, and they're real... I was going to say there's some pretty serious contradictions baked right in there. There sure are, but because most evangelicals are not very interested in theology, they can ignore those contradictions. And what's important to them is, do you know Jesus personally as your Savior? Do you have this personal experience of Christ? That is the testimony of your inward transformation that uh, provides the assurance that, well, whatever quibbles we have about doctrine, we're basically in the same camp. Molly Worthen then said, this, this synthesis in American evangelicalism just cannot stand. It's not going to work. Not even evangelical biblical scholars hold up biblical inerrancy anymore. I had this experience confirmed to me when I researched and wrote the commentary on Joshua. 
because I read a number of conservative evangelical commentaries on Joshua uh, from InterVarsity Press, from Baker. I read a number of these, and none of these biblical scholars uphold inerrancy. They all see the problems with the existing text of the Bible and see no use for the hypothesis that the original autographs were delivered without error. As if to say, well, God could produce an original autograph without error, but then God forgot about taking care of the autographs and preserving them in their inerrancy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can I ask a quick question about the historical trajectory here? Because what I don't hear is the premillennialist influence from Darby and the Schofield Reference Bible. And in my, I would say, more passive knowledge of American evangelicalism, it seems like that is actually has the upper hand over those other three traditions. And as we've seen this, to me, astounding certainty of being able to interpret current events definitively as what God is doing in them, to me, is ultimately very premillennialist, and it has to be some kind of betrayal of all three of those those roots that you were talking about. Does this come into your calculus yes, at all? Yes, and I, w- I could continue with Molly Worthen on that. What happened was up until the publication of Darwin's The Descent of Man, all American Protestants were broadly speaking evangelicals all descended from the first and second great awakenings. And the Civil War was the first great breach in the ranks of American evangelicals. The northern uh, children of the revival became abolitionists. The southern children of the revival became more and more otherworldly. Pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. Was that strategic to distract attention from the from the gross injustice they were committing? Is that the idea? I think it's, you know, you have to remember that the religion of the plantation owners was largely Anglican, uh, uh, Episcopalian. And the religion of the people living in the hollers and valleys of Tennessee and Kentucky and so forth, Alabama, uh, these were people of the revival. Uh, and they were the Appalachian folk Uh, And they were not slave owners uh, and so forth. So they had a a different kind of um, religiosity. But they were obviously poor white working people, not rich plantation owners enslaving blacks as uh, agricultural workers. Uh, That's a kind of a broad differentiation, but I think it holds up. Uh, And... The evangelicalism took root in the, not only in the rural working class white communities, but also in the black communities. Uh, evangelicalism became the predominant form of Christianity. Uh, of course, what evangelicalism means in a black, uh, oppressed black community and an oppressed white community are somewhat different. But in any case, the revivalism The emphasis on the experience of the new birth uh, was there in both uh, black and white communities in the South. And there was this breach during the war between the states, between the northern abolitionist version of evangelicalism, which led then naturally towards social gospel and social reform, 
and the defeated Southern evangelicalism, which gravitated towards interworldly asceticism, otherworldly hopes for redemption in heaven. And this uh, um, tendency to split uh, became codified uh, probably as late as the 1920s in the great fundamentalist modernist controversies in the United States, the emblem of which is the Scopes trial over teaching Darwin in public schools. And that, Sarah, is where the premillennialism comes from. Uh, Premillennial theology is a theology of historically defeated people, Southern Appalachians in particular, who are saying that this world belongs to the devil. There's no hope for redemption in this world. Uh, God is going to vengefully destroy this world because of its apostasy, believing that we descended from monkeys and that there's no difference between whites and blacks and all this kind of stuff that ignorantly went together in one stew. And then I suppose the post-millennialism is the, the northern abolitionist evangelical blowback of, right. no, we can, we can build our way to uh, the kingdom of heaven here on earth with just enough uh, reform and soft government right. control. Yeah, the reign of Christ will come through our political efforts. Yeah, the millennial reign of Christ. Boo, a pox on both their houses, man. Yeah, really. From a Lutheran point of view, I think you really have to do, you really do have to say that. So the divorce uh, in American Protestantism was codified or, or uh, finalized in the 1920s in the fundamentalist modernist controversies. Uh, and as a result, uh, what we call evangelicalism today uh, uh, is basically the latter-day outgrowth of the 1920s Southern uh, fundamentalism. But with Billy Graham, it took a surprising uh, turn. Uh, Billy Graham uh, was a powerful preacher as a youth. I, with my brother, I went to a Billy Graham crusade at Yankee Stadium in the 1960s, I think. And it was a quite a remarkable experience. And I still love the hymn, Just As I Am, without one plea. And Graham finally took the evangelical message out of the hard form of premillennial uh, uh, fundamentalism and preached a, a, a recognizable gospel of Christ as um, the savior of sinners and so forth that I think had broad appeal. And he won a lot of credibility, uh, new credibility for evangelicalism when Jimmy Carter ran for president in 1976, he said without fear of ridicule, I'm an evangelical. I teach Sunday school at my Baptist church every Sunday. And nobody mocked him. Well, I mean, I suppose some some folks in my hometown. But not the way it would be now. Not the way it would be now. So, um uh, and with the rise of the religious right in the 1980s and 90s, that uh, Billy Graham approach of being America's pastor was overshadowed 
by a kind of militant uh, moral majoritarianism. All of that you can learn from Molly Worthen's great uh, history of American evangelicalism. All right. Well, I think that lays out the territory for us pretty well. And since we don't have a whole lot of time left, why don't we, if you don't mind, transition now to saying what specifically are you putting forward for Luther as a resource for an evangelicalism a bit in shambles right now? Okay. Um, A scholar, a British scholar, laid out um, four characteristics of evangelicalism, an emphasis on the new birth, an emphasis on the Bible, an emphasis on evangelization, and an emphasis on the atonement. Those are the four, uh, as, you, as you could say, the theological topics or doctrinal topics that preoccupy evangelicals. So in the first half of the little book I wrote, I said, what's Luther's take on the new birth, the Bible, evangelism, and the atonement? And I try to point out, I hope in winsome and friendly ways, how Luther's take on these preoccupations can be quite illuminating and also liberating for evangelicals. If evangelicals are constantly in a state of anxiety about whether they have experienced the new birth, Luther helps them by uh, saying that the new birth is a matter of faith, not sight. One believes in one's new birth because one believes in Christ, and believing in Christ, one believes in one's own new birth. So you have to you get liberated from the constant anxiety of whether your soul is right with the Lord, understanding that Christ is the one who is right with the Lord, and that it's sufficient for you to be in Christ by faith. Uh, on the Bible. Uh, Luther liberates us from the bibliolatry, making an idol out of the Bible. Because for Luther, who honored and loved the Bible immensely, the Bible is the manger, the animal feed trough, in which the Christ child is laid. So again, that distinguishes between the precious content of the Bible, the gospel of Christ, and the uh, human uh, uh, platform, uh, place, writings, scriptures, authors, etc., which constitute the Bible. So one does not have to ferociously defend uh, a doctrine like inerrancy, which is in any case not something that's going to uh, be plausible uh, to anybody but those already convinced. Uh, On evangelization, uh, Luther's approach If I can quote the words of a 20th century theologian, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where he has found bread. It's sharply to be distinguished from proselytism. Evangelism is not the business of winning recruits to the church. Evangelism is the wonderful business of communicating in thought, word, and deed, communicating what God has done for the world that he so loved that he gave his son. And that suffices. That suffices. Uh, And the fruit of that evangelism is not in human power in any case. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And on the atonement, again, it's not a matter of Jesus took the rap for me, therefore I get off scot-free. 
a kind of um, a cheap version of atonement theology in which Jesus is simply the punishment bearer. For Luther, uh, of course, Christ, the Lamb of God, is the one who bears away the sin of the world. Christ is the sin bearer long before he's ever the punishment bearer. And so atonement happens in the actual event of word and sacrament, in the joyful exchange, when Christ says, give me your sin and take my righteousness, give me your death and take my life, etc. Then in that event in which faith gives to Christ our human negatives and receives from Christ God's divine positives, that's when we are actually at one again with God, atonement. That's when we are reconciled to God. So those are the Lutheran takes on these topics, uh, Luther's takes on these topics that I think of evangelicals would benefit from studying and taking to heart. One part that particularly struck me in this book, um, probably because I think Lutherans also need to retrieve it, is you talked about the emphasis on the catechetical method. Could you just say a few words about that? Right. Uh, one of the crises of contemporary evangelicalism is that revivalism has become literally incredible. Revivalism, you know, had a soft version in Billy Graham, you know, uh, when he invited people to come forward and receive Christ as Lord and Savior and so forth. It had none, none of the ardors of 19th century revivalism with the anxious bench and all that stuff. Uh, but even Billy Graham crusades have gone out of favor now. They don't accomplish what they did when I was young. At least not in North America, yeah. So what's the future of evangelicalism if it can't bank on revivalism? Well, uh, here I recommend Luther's catechetical approach, which is actually based, I discovered, on a very careful study of the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is the model of catechesis, instructing the young, the new generation, in it, the legacy it has received from uh, uh, the covenant, covenantal past so that it becomes actual in the present. And in that light, I interpret Luther's catechetical method of Christian renewal in contrast to what revivalism is. I have to make a few other comments here. Of course, mainline Christians since the 1960s have basically given up on catechism. And part of the weakness of the mainline uh, liberal Protestant churches is that there's no catechesis. It doesn't happen anymore. You have youth events that are meant to tickle the fancy of teenagers and get them to bond emotionally with the church, but the content of the faith is, not, is, is only haphazardly uh, communicated in those critical formative years. Uh, so I think Luther's catechetical method has a lot to recommend also to the so-called mainline, sidelined churches of today. Yeah, to use a, a very trendy word, I think the catechism method is sustainable in a way that the others are not. Uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds good to me. <laughs> All right, so one last question before we go. Where would you say is the the uh, sharpest bite in this book towards contemporary evangelicalism? Or where is the rebuke or the slap in the face the strongest? Oh, gee. I um, showed 
this a draft of this book to um, an evangelical friend, and uh, he felt that it was very sharp, unfairly sharp, and he said, you're going to just lose your audience. Huh, really? Yeah. And so I tried to... I thought you went kind of soft. <laughs> you thought I went kind of soft. Well, anyway, I, I took the critique to heart and tried hard to uh, make the book winsome. I see. Uh, I must have read only the winsome version then. Okay. <laughs> no, I think the answer to the question is that evangelicals don't know their own history. And that's what has to change. That's kind of what I'm trying to do in the book. Yeah, well, as as uh, people have heard me say before, I don't think there's any way forward without a, a a real reckoning with and reclaiming of of history. You can't you can't um, as Jesus would say, you cannot grow up tall and strong if you don't have deep roots at all to anchor you in place. Amen. So, so that's what the book's about: trying to address the present crisis in American evangelicalism. All right. Well. Uh, listeners, give it to a good evangelical friend. Let's let's make this thing spread. There'll be links to how to buy it in the show notes. And thanks for listening.